The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. Today we bring you Jeremy Como's interview with Jane Linscold about the third entry in her Overwear series, House of Rough Diamonds. It's available now in trade paperback and all your favorite ebook formats. DRM free at Bain.com, of course. Let's take a listen. And our guest today is the award-winning, best-selling, New York Times best-selling author, Jane Linskold. Welcome, Jane. How are you? Okay. Thank you. Well, um, before we get started, let's um, let people know where they can find you online, promote anything you want to promote. Okay. Online, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter for now. Um, you can, yeah. you can, uh, also, uh, I do, I blog twice a week and you can find links to all of these and anywhere I might migrate to in the, uh, ongoing chaos of the internet at my website, www.janelinskull.com. Awesome. And my most recent project as you know, is the third novel in my Overwear series from Bain. It is a, uh, yes, House of Rough Diamonds. Good job. Um, this is the third book in a series that began with Library of the Sapphire Wind, continued in Aurora Borealis Bridge, and moves on here. Um, the first two books in the series were very closely tied in. This third book is definitely a sequel, but it's a sequel that actually somebody probably could pick up this third book since first mm -hmm. and read it and follow it. But uh, there would, of course, be spoilers since you for the first two books, since you'd know who isn't dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's that's how I read it. I read the third one uh, first. And uh, so I'm, I think I'm going to go back and uh, read the first two to uh, better understand it. Yeah, I think that there's one plot line in there, the one... Um, having to do with Varese's parents that mm -hmm. might benefit from having read the prior books. Yeah. But I think I gave enough background in there that you could pick up. Well, you, you're our testimony. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I followed along pretty well. So uh, go, go get the other books anyway, but uh, you can, you'll, you'll get the gist of it by reading the third book, but go get, go get the other ones anyway, support your artists. Well, not just that, but they're pretty darn good. Yes. Um, yes. I'd like to say that uh, I wrote them because I felt like writing them. Mm -hmm. um, no other reason whatsoever, just mad idea and love. We can talk a bit about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was actually planning on indie pubbing them, but okay. I was working with Tony. Well, they're weird. You know, I wasn't sure that fit into any of the increasingly restrictive uh, publishing niches these days, mm -hmm. but I was working with Tony already in my collaborations with David Weber. <clears throat> and I like Tony and consider her pretty open-minded. So I checked with her and she bought them, I think the moment she finished reading them. I don't, it, it didn't take very long. That's awesome. Uh, so, so they don't fit normal categories very well, but I think they're a great deal of fun. Well, and uh, what I gathered from reading it is they're kind of um, multi-gen. They don't they don't fit in any uh, particular categories, like as far as like age groups. Right. You know, you can go. You could be. It could be YA, but it's also got some adult stuff in there. So it's it's a good mix. Yeah, it's definitely. I think a little strong for the younger side of YA, mm -hmm. but uh, some of the concerns are those that younger people have. But given that three of my main characters, the baby of that group is in her 50s, the, <laughs> they're certainly not uh, not kids' books. So um, uh, one of my questions, were you ever a librarian? No, I never was a librarian in the real sense. Yeah. Um, 
how, I mean, a librarian is a very specialized profession. A lot of mm -hmm. people don't realize that technically to be a librarian, that's a master's degree. Mm -hmm. And it's a very skilled, very uh, demanding master's because it's what they call a terminal master's, which means you get you get everything there. It's a it's a tough job. Mm -hmm. um, but two very close friends are librarians, uh, Gail Gerstner Miller and Julie Bartell. But in addition, uh, when I was in grammar school and a very, very shy kid, uh, I think I am the only child in the history of education to be forbidden the library. Mm. Um, but that was my favorite place to be. And seventh and eighth grade, I was the informal assistant to the librarian because it was a very small school and somebody needed to cover for her when she went on breaks. But there were a few courses I wasn't doing terribly well in the only in only incentive they could think of to get me to apply myself was to tell me I couldn't go into the library. <laughs> and, and when I finally pulled my grades up in those, I was given something I still have to this day. It's very battered, but a little tin button saying assistant librarian. Oh, and that's I was awesome. so dreadfully proud. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. So uh, you have something uh, in, in common with my, so I, I read up on you. So uh, uh -oh. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all good. Uh, so uh, you have something in common with my wife and she's, she's the oldest child mm -hmm. and, Eng and an English major. And she lived in libraries when she was a child. <laughs> Great. I think I'll look forward to meeting her someday. Yeah. And um, so uh, what else? So I, I know you're you're a lover of uh, literature and writing and and, and all that, and it, and it shows because you're very prolific as far as your your writing goes. Um, what made you want to write about a you know a fantasy library and and all the the people that are uh, in that story? Okay, um, there's so many different paths that went there, but I'll I'll pick up on one of them, which is why the people mm -hmm. um even as a, a kid when i was loving and reading portal fantasy you know narnia and a bunch of the others um i did have one question which is why if you want your universe saved are you asking a bunch of kids mm -hmm. i mean no you know no offense they're lovely but it's a lot <laughs> and i thought c.s lewis did a really great job in the end of the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of touching on what's basically PTSD, especially mm -hmm. for Peter, who has to kill the Fenris wolf and, you know, is up to his elbows in giant wolf gore. And yeah, he may be the oldest of the kids, but I don't think he's terribly old. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, so, and then when it became really popular some years ago, to have portal fantasies with teens or near teens. I mean, Harry Potter launched a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, again, there's this question, you know, I love teenagers. I, that was a great, great delight and surprise to me how much I like teenagers. But again, all those hormones kicking around online and not sure whether to prioritize your first crush mm -hmm. or if the Dark Lord's going to eat everybody or getting your homework done. Why kids? <laughs> the other question I had was, um, what happens afterwards? So the trigger in part for this series uh, was Sean and McGuire's excellent book, Doorways of the Heart. Mm -hmm. Because Doorways of the Heart does deal with what happens afterwards. Um, I like the whole series, but that first book in particular, which tightly focuses on these wayward children. So I thought, okay, Shannon's done a really good job with that. What about writing the book that answers the other question? And another thing that, another path that led me there was my own frustration with the fact that, uh, as, that after a certain age, unless they're playing, you know, offstage secondary support characters, Anybody older than about 30 seems to become invisible. 
mm -hmm. a lot of science fiction and fantasy. And I felt, I'll admit it, uh, very humanly, I felt sad. I felt sad that there I was in my mid-late 50s, and apparently according to the world of the genre I loved best, there was no room for me. Mm -hmm. And that made me sad. So I decided I wanted to write a book where not only were the protagonists, three of the protagonists older, but they were going to have a knockout, full-blown, let's get on that flying ship and see real weirdness adventure. Not a, not, you know, there are books with older protagonists, but they're often running coffee shops mm -hmm. or, um, you know, they're not, they're not active. And one of the things I found when I was doing my research is there's a lot of really active seniors out there. That's probably also uh, in, definitely uh, impacted by the fact that my 91-year-old mother still lives on her own, drives, uh, is a serious volunteer for St. Vincent de Paul, as in she doesn't just go to meetings, she goes door to door, you know, to help deliver food supplies to people. Mm -hmm. Compared to mom, you know, Meg, who's the oldest of my three senior protags, is a positive baby. <laughs> yeah, what, 40, 40 years? <laughs> so. No, that, that's so. Uh, when when you uh, wrote these characters, the the three uh, main characters, uh, do you put any of yourself in there? Do you put any of your friends or family members or people who should not be named? Or I don't really. Um, I uh, the only time I have directly put somebody in a story I've written is a short story I writ wrote called Jeff's Best Joke which uh, appeared in the anthology Past Imperfect Time Travel Stories, and which uh, I reprinted in my own short story collection, Curiosities. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to use archaeology in that because archaeologists, to me, are real time travelers. I happen to be been married to one for 26-some years. And uh, you go for a walk with Jim in a place where he's done archaeology, and he'll, he's seen the whole level. He's not just seeing what's there at that moment. He's seeing what was there and why it was there and all that stuff. So when I wrote Jeff's best joke, I planned to use some of the uh, practical jokes that Jim and his co-director, Jeff Boyer, had played on each other over the years. And I found that I could not separate the tricks and the tricksters. So... <laughs> I got in touch. Jim was calling me from work and I said, hey, uh, ask Jeffrey uh, if he minds being a character in a story. I promise he'll get to see it first so he can be sure there's nothing offensive to him. And uh, then go ahead and, and you don't have any choice. But of course he did. I yeah. mean, you know. Um, so that's the only story I've ever written where I have deliberately used someone I knew as themselves with their full names, descriptions, etc. On the whole, I like meeting imaginary people and spending time with them. Uh, even when I've done a few uh, Tuckerizations in uh, in my novels, uh, often the name has been changed, and I consult with the person who's being Tuckerized to make sure that we're picking up on the details of themselves that they'd like to see on the page uh, rather than my my generalized impression. But no, on the whole, I don't. Uh, let's see, going through the characters in um, the Overware books, mm -hmm. uh, Meg owes something to my great love of librarians and libraries in general, and is also something of an homage to the generation that was of working women it was beginning to get out there and be professionals, but really their choices were very, very restricted. Mm -hmm. Librarian, teacher, nurse, as professions rather than, you know, secretary, typist, whatever, house cleaning. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, then uh, Peg, 
Peg is very, very important to me because she doesn't have any profession. And I really get annoyed uh, at how women who make the valiant decision to be there for their kids and often for other people's kids get dismissed. Yeah. So I wanted to have Peg at, there as a salute to all of those women who, even if they have professional backgrounds, take time off to be the on-deck, in-person, hardworking, on raising kids mom. And since so many women with kids have to work or choose to keep working, uh, they often end up mothering other people's kids as well. Mm -hmm. So Peg was very, very important to me that we did not leave out all of those wonderful people. Yeah, I've definitely had some work moms. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, um, and then the last one, Teg, since I knew they would be looking for the Library of the Sapphire Wind, mm -hmm. and I knew the Library of Sapphire Wind would be gone effectively, we needed an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. And uh, since I happen to have one on tap, I felt very comfortable doing an archaeologist as a character because not only am I married to one, but I've known a lot of his colleagues. Uh, one thing that people seem completely unaware of is that archaeology is becoming a very strongly dominated by women profession. So Teg is not an anomaly at all. No. Uh, she is uh, very representative of the current generation of project, di project director archaeologists who are out there running projects, digging with the best of them, and, uh, and all the rest. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. I, I find archaeology very fascinating and the fact that uh, and the things that they can find. It's like uh, every year the, the new things they discover or, you know, how society used to be. I, I just love that kind of stuff. Um, and then along the line of uh, older people, uh, you know, becoming uh, main characters. I like the uh, the trend well, some of the trends in Hollywood where some of these older actors are still or being in action films, you know, yes. Uh, yes. Helen Mirren was in, uh, in Red Notice, you know, mm -hmm. oh, Red, sorry. Red Notice is another movie, mm -hmm. um, you know. Harrison Ford still making Indiana Jones movies. Um, the uh, the Expendables, uh, even Keanu Reeves. I mean, I think he's in his fit, late fifties. He's making action movies. So I, I kind of like that trend where uh, you're seeing older people with uh, you know still be being able to pull off these roles. You know, mm -hmm. and but of course in movies they've got stunt doubles, and there's always that little separation in the uh, viewer's mind. Oh, they probably didn't do that. That's probably where the stunt double kicked in. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do characters who would be thinking about how their knees felt <laughs> um, and all those other things as they were doing, you know, thinking about the fact that I need to run. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, this is gonna hurt. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. No, that uh, no, that was, I found that um, very unique and very interesting, and and I and I appreciate it. And and again, it's uh, it's very underrepresented. So uh, so kudos to you. Now now some of the other characters. Yeah. That um, so I, I I've noticed in, in a lot of your writing, you have a, a great affinity for animals. Oh yeah. And um, and so. Uh, and we can talk about some of those other series as well. Um, so in, in this, kind of describe where that took you with these characters. Okay. I really wanted this to be a, an imaginary world. Not, um, I have no problem with writers uh, who take historical settings, file off the serial numbers, and use them. Um, I, That's a great way to put it. <laughs> you know, Tamara Pierce, whose work I love, and I think I've read everything she's done down to the, the last short story, um, does that because she admits she's not a terrific world builder. So she uses that as an anchor, and she but she infuses it so powerfully with her own material that by mm -hmm. the time she's done, it's really 
really that. But I wanted, I really wanted to build a high magic fantasy world that was not going to be anything like anything else anybody had ever run into before. So that was that was my general setting. But I love very anthropic characters. Uh, they're often called anthropomorphic. I don't really understand why, because anthro means human and morphic means shape. Mm -hmm. So you know, saying human-shaped character doesn't quite do it. Um, right. But uh, the the animal animal-headed, human-bodied, mingled traits characters. I've had a fascination with for forever, basically. Mm. Um, I was so terribly, ex and I love shapeshifters too, though I didn't do, I haven't done them in here, but mm. I love shapeshifters as well. So I wanted to do them and have that be the norm in this world, mm -hmm. which created a lot of fun for me to bring in three humans and have them have to redefine themselves as the ones who looked monstrous. We're the oddballs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're the, we're the oddballs. And so I guess that's kind of more science fictional than fantasy, but mm -hmm. I've always tended to blend, blend my sensibilities. Yeah. And so we have the going from oldest to youngest, we have uh, Leonine Zarak who is uh, in his mid twenties and is sort of a genius uh, wizard. Um, you know, he's the he's the child prodigy out of the lot. He's um, he's. I wanted to have a functional magic user in the group, and since it couldn't be any of my humans, it had to be one of the kids, which meant making him a prodigy. On the whole, I don't do prodigies, but I need mm -hmm. it. Um, and you know, Zarak I is is great. He's uh, he's got all sorts of of issues uh, because he's so talented that he doesn't quite fit in with anybody except the other two characters, Grunwald and Varese, he's been friends with since he was a kid. And mm. if you ever get around to reading Library of the Sapphire Wind, oh boy, do those three have a wake-up call about their parents. <laughs> I definitely uh, did not go into details about that in in House of Rough Diamonds, except in a, the most general sense. But right. one of the biggest mind-boggling moments is in Library of the Sapphire Wind, when Varese, Zarak, and Grunwald find out exactly what their parents were doing in college and immediately after. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Dirty so, laundry. So we have, uh, we have, so when Zarak decides he spent a year searching for his magical apprentice master who vanished without a trace one day, and he's going to go and consult a magical shrine where you can get advice and sometimes mentorship, he tells his two childhood friends and each of them have problems of their own and decide to come along. And I won't go into those problems because as Meg Peg and Tag know for the from the beginning they're getting lied to. The kids are only telling them part of what's bugging them so much, and part yeah. of the fun of the books is finding out. It, Meg, Peg, and Tag know kids; they figure it out. Um, they they know they're being told half truths. Um, teenagers and twenty somethings always think they're so much smarter about hiding that from their grown ups. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I taught college. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. They always trying to get away with something. Well, I also read an awful lot of essays written by college freshmen who were usually somewhere between 18 and 20. Mm -hmm. So I got a lot of a lot of looks at the inside of those heads. Wonderful heads, but not maybe as clever as they think they are. Um, but that's part of the charm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Grunwald is the one who, on the cover, has the stag's head. Uh, he looks quite like his dad. Mm. Uh, he's the son of a gentleman farmer and, and well, pair of gentleman farmers, so to speak. Um, he loves the, the flying ship that's in the background. Slice Wind is, is his version of, you know, the, the, the 
early late teen, early 20s, who loves their car possibly more than anybody else in the universe. Mm -hmm. and he, Slice Wind is his baby. So is the uh, orange and green pterodactyl-like creature, Heru, who he raised from an egg. And uh, Grunwald is, is grumpy and actually possibly the sweetest of the three. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, Varese. She comes from lots and lots and lots of money, lots and lots and lots of privilege. Um, she knows she's pretty. She knows she's smart. Uh, but, well, she has a few issues that she has to come to terms with, too. And since the first two books are very much about them discovering what those issues are and where they are, I don't want to talk too much. But... All three of them, none of them are based on real people, but all three of them really do reflect the wonderful complexity that I found when teaching college students, where in some things they're as brilliant as brilliant can be, and then something that an adult would not even think about as an issue can throw them for a loop. And to some extent, I drew on my own experience there. I was a really smart college student. College is where I suddenly realized I just might be smart. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of setting up a checking account all on my own scared the living daylights out of me. Yeah. What is it? The worst thing that ever happened to you is the worst thing that ever happened to you. So, you know, if you haven't uh, had a whole lot of life experience, you know, it's <laughs> anything could be daunting. And yet uh -huh. on the other hand, they can, on things that they've specialized in on, and focused on whatever it is. It might be a sport, it mm -hmm. might be a hobby, it might be being a reader. Uh, my, my nephew who graduated college a couple of years ago could probably give a run for their money for anybody on trains. Mm -hmm. they're, they're right up there with the adults and surpassing them. And yeah, I wanted to get that across. Yeah. So, um... I, th I think we already we talked about, it, but what what made you want to write <laughs> about uh, a a, li a a basically a almost like a sentient library? I really like libraries. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're the coolest places on earth. Uh, when I moved to New Mexico, uh, after, well, actually, when I moved to Albuquerque and was looking for a place to spend some time and. Where did I go volunteer? A library. Mm -hmm. um, so that it just is my longtime abiding love of libraries. Now, the title of the book and why library also has a different, completely different answer, mm -hmm. but, it, but it doesn't invalidate it. You know those funny online quizzes you get where they say something like, you know, the color of your hair, the model of your car, and what you last ate mm -hmm. is the title of your next book or right. something like that. Right. Well, <clears throat> one day, one of those uh, ran across my stream and it was, uh, let's see, the place you last were, your birthstone and the weather is the title of your next book. Uh -huh. And in my case, it was library, sapphire and wind. And I went, oh my that would be the greatest book title. <laughs> <laughs> but I had just been to the library. Like I said, they're mm -hmm. one of my favorite places. So neither neither story is incorrect. That's awesome. No, uh, so <laughs> that's that's funny. That's where the uh, the title comes from. So uh, the- uh, now then the I had to work out what a Sapphire Wind was, right. but you know. Well, uh, speaking of of characters, the the uh, the ship is almost its own. Oh yeah, uh, character. Yes, so and talk about that. Um, Slice Wind is a flying ship. How Slice Wind functions is basically the magic handles why it can why it can go up in the sky and be elevated, um, but it has uh, it 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 pretty much needs wind as its method of propulsion. It's when air speed is roughly the equivalent of a small plane. 
So while it can get them places in, in good time, it's not like, and now we'll be on the other side of the world in 14 hours, like mm. on today with a jumbo jet. All right. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought these ships work in three-dimensional space. They're not just like a sailing ship going up back and forth and side to side. They're going up and down. So it struck me that with they would probably have to have a little bit of inherent intelligence. And Grunwald gets more out of slice wind than most would because he's been, that's, that's his pet ship. Mm -hmm. He could fly another sky sailor, but slice wind will always be the one he, he gets the most out of. Yeah. Uh, I also, um, so one thing I, I like about a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or the mixture uh, thereof is, um, you know, some people, uh, some authors will create uh, different industries or technologies, you know, like our, a lot of our technologies based off of petroleum, you know, mm -hmm. off oil and things like that, combustion engines, and, uh, mm -hmm. and then you go from there, um, where, uh, you know, other books will come up with some other either source of energy or their source of their technology. And then in this world, um, it's more organic. Mm -hmm. You know, not uh, so. And I and I loved some of the the the, uh, you know, vehicles, technically not vehicles that you came up with and how that, you know, they came about. But at the same time, a little bit of science. It's not like magic is their science, but there's also some more science mixed in there. You know, yes, I enjoyed that. Yeah. From the beginning, my most my best known series is my eight volume wolf books. Mm. They, they, they gave this. They gave the series the Firekeeper Saga as a mm. title, but everybody just calls them the Wolf Books. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of cool, including me. <laughs> mm. um, but um, when those were coming out, the senior editor at Tor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, said they're essentially science fantasy because, yes, there's magic there, but it's not going to just be a quick save out of nowhere and it's not going to be vague and numinous woo stuff. One of the things I'll, you know, I'll admit I get really upset about is how people who don't really know anything about magic seem to think systematized magic came out of gaming mm -hmm. and that real magic is, ooh, I feel the force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the other way around. Read your ancient, you know, read the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which I have. You know, read a whole bunch of other older magical slash religious texts. And spells are system, mm -hmm. not the other way around. Um, the woo modern new agey idea of, I feel, you know, the, I mean, I like the Star Wars movies, but, you know, I feel the force, and so I can mm -hmm. do anything that the movie director wants me to do at a given yeah. time. It's ambiguous enough. I can do anything with it, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's actually not how real magic tends to work in cultures that really believe that they could magically manipulate the universe. You know, Egyptian mummies didn't have all those amulets in the various layers of the wrappings because the embalmers wanted to slow down and add jewelry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if I'm going to do magic, I think it's more magical if it's a system, not less. Yeah, there's uh, there, there's math there's math and science involved. You know where uh, mm -hmm. you know it's, it's it's like you said. So how would you is that basically how would you you would describe the magical system uh, within uh, this series? Is yeah. uh, is just spell so, more like science magic? It's spell based magic, but how well you can use it depends on a variety of things, which I discuss a lot as my characters learn it. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that comes up by the time you've read House of Rough Diamonds, both Teg and Varese are using magic. 
But actually, tag, of course, comes from our world and can't use magic. Or And Varese has been told that she has, oh, a very minimal talent, but mm -hmm. nothing at all. And so as the first two books evolve, Zarak definitely has his issues with this diagnosis, if you'd like, and sets out to teach them how to use what they have. Zarak kind of qualifies as the mad genius. He's the Tesla. He's the Albert Einstein. He's the one who, in a pinch, and in fact, he does so at the beginning of House of Rough Diamonds, evolves a major spell on the fly. But on the whole, most people go to a magical university or have a tutor, or I'll introduce other things as the series on expands um, to get taught. But, um, you know, so Zarek is, yeah, Zarek is kind of Tesla. You know, I have this crazy weird idea and I can make it work. But most people have to have some sort of systematized way of manipulating those abilities. And the most common cost is exhaustion. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the first chapter of House of Rough Diamonds, Teg is terribly proud of the fact that she doesn't pass out. Because <laughs> usually she does. Yeah. There's always a cost. Mm -hmm. There should be. Yeah. Even in even in science, there's a cost. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I are sitting here and we're talking in a way that, quite frankly, when I was a kid was high science fiction. Mm -hmm. We're chatting real time with each other, no time lag. We're seeing each other in color. We're hearing each other's voices clearly, but there's a cost. Uh, and there's the cost of the computer chips in there. There's the cost of the rarity of some of the materials in those computer chips. There's, there's the social cost that is becoming, people are becoming aware of, of what's happening to get some of those materials. Yep. Uh, you know, I gave you my landline number because if there had been a, our modem had gone down, I wanted you to be able to reach me by another means than the computer. So right. we're reliant on the modem, we're reliant on ISPs, we're reliant on a whole lot of things, but we don't think about that. And so the people in my world don't routinely think, you know, I am going to sit and think about how my magic flashlight works. Right. Well, it's like uh, you, and, you and I come from generations that grew up without a lot of this technology, especially the internet. Yes. And and it came upon us, um, like with me, it was right after uh, right after high school where we started, you know, uh, getting uh, or last bit of high school into college where we started getting personal computers and right. being able to do things online and and things like that. But we knew a time um, before that where you had to know where you were going. Yes. You know, you couldn't yes. just look well, it up. You know? And it's really interesting because you're basically the gen the generation I was teaching mm -hmm. when I taught college. <clears throat> I was a very baby college professor. <laughs> I was 26 when I started teaching college. Oh wow, that is young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was I, I don't credit myself with being particularly brilliant. I didn't when I got four years of scholarship and I had signed up for to do a master's in PhD. And I was given by Fordham University a four-year scholarship. I assume since they had seen what I wanted to do, they expected me to finish. So I did. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just lucky nobody told me it was impossible. Yes. It always. Yeah, but then, yeah, you might have railed against it. I'll show you. You know. <laughs> it wasn't like that. I just didn't know. I assumed yeah. that if they gave me four years of scholarship, I was supposed to finish the job. So I, I did um, everything, including writing my dissertation in that four years. Uh, I defended my dissertation after, but that was only because they had to wait till the end of the, the term to get people back, you know, who could be on the, the dissertation committee. But I was, I was done in those four years. Um, yeah. And I was really, I, me and computers came in with, Fordham University, where I was a grad student and a grad assistant, 
really wanted to stagger its way into the computer age. So they required every department to have two PCs. None of the faculty wanted one. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so they gave them to me and another graduate student. Mm -hmm. I was already somewhat computer literate. I knew how to work on the mainframe and, you know, do underlining where you had to type in, you know, four digits of code and then your word and then four digits of different code to finish underlying things. Mm -hmm. um, so I was already moderately computer literate. Uh, not a, I couldn't have written the code, but I knew what it was. And so I got a computer. That led me to actually my first job where I taught college at Lynchburg College in South Central Virginia, a small liber uh, liberal arts college, which was really nice. Uh, lovely people. You hear all sorts of horrors. I was so, so lucky. They were nice, nice people. Uh, they didn't care that I was writing science fiction and fantasy, you know, as long as Dr. Linskold went and taught her classes, if I was writing odd stuff on the side, that was fine. But they decided to distinguish themselves from the herd by being one of the first colleges ever to require all incoming freshmen to have a personal computer. Oh, wow. And they cut a deal with Microsoft um, to make it affordable. And then they went, well, now we've done this. What the hell, pardon, uh, we're going to do with all of these students with computers? Well, I guess they'll make, we'll make them write their papers on them. Yeah. So the English department, which is where I was, became, oddly enough, not the computer science department or anything. It was the English department that was on the front lines of convincing students to use uh, computers, we were uh, the ones who were the first to be using the networked classroom because at that point, networking individual computers just wasn't yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, so we had a, a networked classroom that we were encouraged strongly to use. So there you go. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, again, I, I remember taking uh, classes where we were working on the barest bear of, of code and it was just like a line it, it wasn't even like uh it was just a couple of lines that we were trying to figure out and then within a few years you have a personal computer at your house you know and yeah. and i think as as our generations kind of benefit from the fact of being kind of those straddle uh generations to where we we grew up without it and then now we have it and i think we can we appreciate it more for sure Mm -hmm. uh, the younger generation, they've never known any different. It's like, no, right. this is just what you do, you know? And, yeah, uh, and, and you have computing power in your phone and mm -hmm. you assume that everybody's instantaneously connected. You know, at the yeah. beginning of this, you asked me about, you know, where can people find you online? And I told yeah. you, but the answer is also, uh, don't expect me to be there 24 seven. Right. I have a life. Thank you very much. I want to write books. Um, I do answer email. You can send me an email. The con there's a contact email on my website under contact. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I'm not available 24 seven. I am yeah. available uh, weekdays pretty much and not weekends because when I was uh, still in my very early thirties, I lost somebody I loved more than anyone in the world. And uh, when I was lucky enough to find another really great person to spend my life with, I was determined he would never feel like a second-class citizen in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I take off weekends and evenings to be with, you know, be with him. Yeah, no, good, good on you, because a lot of people don't do that. They don't uh, put time in with the family. So. Well, not everybody has, I mean, I, I really appreciate that for a lot of people who write, they have a day job yeah. and they, if they're going to write, they need to take some time in the evening. But some years ago at the prompting of people who read my blog regularly, where I write about uh, writing when I feel like it, and they, it's called wanderings on writing because I absolutely refuse to be pinned down to write to talking about anything specific. Uh, so I wander. Um, 
but people said, we really love your pieces on writing and we would very much like, you know, they're, yes, they're available for free on your blog site, but would really like to have them in a print volume or an ebook where we can consult them. Mm -hmm. So I, I put together a book called uh, Wanderings on Writing. Uh, the, the blog is called the Wednesday Wanderings, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Wednesday, because that's when I post. Um, and the book is Wanderings on Writing. And two of the essays in it are what to expect if you're in a relationship with a writer. Oh, cool. You know, because I've seen marriages break up. I've seen a lot of relationships break up because somebody thinks it's really cool to be, they think it's going to be really cool to date a writer. And then they find out that we spend an awful lot of time caring deeply and passionately for people who don't exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, family in your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I wanted to write an essay about, you know, but then I wrote another one and I said, well, it's what a writer owes. If you're going to be asking your significant other, or your parents or whoever to so be supportive of your very odd hobby slash career choice, you owe them something. Yeah. And I've been on panels that the main theme is uh, let's make everybody feel sorry for us because our parents don't read our books or our spouses don't read our books or our kids don't read our books. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, moderate language, moderate language, moderate language. You may fill in the words of your life as you like. Get real. Yeah, yeah. If your spouse is an accountant and they've spent the last two months putting together a really complicated incorporation agreement, are you going to sit down and read it <laughs> and ask them for the details? Not even a little bit. <laughs> you know, so that's it. So there is an inherent selfishness encouraged in writers and a sense of entitlement that really drives me up the wall. I'm lucky. My husband was a science fiction and fantasy reader before we met, and I'm really lucky he likes my stuff, and I'm really lucky he serves as my first reader. Um... But I know a lot of writers who don't have that. So mm -hmm. am I not going to give him time? Yeah. And by the way, I do read his papers. Uh, my, <laughs> Good on you. Over my head. But yeah, no. Uh, well, I uh, kudos to you because I think it's very important that you included those uh, those essays because uh, when people are, are reading about how to write, what to you know. Um, you're thinking just the technical part of it, but if you want to make a go at it and it has to basically become your obsession. So I think it's very important that you included those, uh, those essays because people might not realize that this, this could, uh, it could be a hardship on a, on a relationship. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, that might be a fun, I know there's a lot of family people at Bain. It might really mm -hmm. be fun to, try and find a sampling of people who feel that their spouse is a supportive part of their writing team and how they, uh, they make it work. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, going back to wanderings on writing, I'd just like to say it is not a, how to become a New York times bestselling author book. Mm -hmm. I hate those because it's a lie. Quite frankly, Anyone short of maybe state Stephen King, who, by the way, his book is not a how to become a best-selling New York Times author. Um, it's very human and it's very. And here's where I, you know, did something silly or dumb. Um, but the painting on the front of the book cover is done by a friend of mine who watercolored it with her cute little butt sticking up in the air as she painted um on my on my living on a poster board on my living room floor with my cats trying to get in her paint water, um, but it's a picture of a sort of uh, Mesoamerican style dragon with a great big golden key, mm -hmm. and included my favorite coffee mug, and but the big golden key is because 
years ago when I was being asked to speak to what was then a very big writers conference in Albuquerque run by Southwest Writers, I said to a friend of mine who had spoken there repeatedly, I said, and I won't name the friend because his response was a bit cynical. Um, I said, what do they want from me? I've never done a writer's conference like this. I've done a lot of science fiction conventions. And he said, oh, they want the golden key. They mm -hmm. paid this conference great big money because you or somebody else is going to slip and tell them what the golden key is to success and fame and fortune. And, um, you know, that, that's what they're there for. So the first essay in the book is called No Golden Key and goes on to talk about how there isn't a golden key, but you can build your own toolkit. You can forge your own golden key. And then the essays in the book talk about a wide variety of writing related things from research to how to discipline yourself to any number of things mm -hmm. that I hope people read any old order they want to. Um, they're in a sort of vaguely associational order, but it's meant to be one of those books you can stick in your bathroom mm -hmm. and read any, any which way you want. Right. Um, because I think that is actually the best way for people to learn how to move toward, uh, becoming a writer who writes regularly and a lot is, you know, the, the, another of my writer friends and I were once at dinner with a friend who loves asking questions. And once she finished, she said, this, my friend was Walter John Williams. Uh, she said, uh, if I've got this straight, there is absolutely no chance that it, Walter and Jane are ever writing at the same time. And Walter and I looked at each other and we were like, yep, that's about right. <laughs> but we both have managed to have uh, constantly productive, multi-decade careers. That's awesome. Well, uh, that book sounds like it should be on every writer's uh, coffee table or in their bathroom. In their bathroom, right. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's not because I really like that you, you kind of touch on the, the behind the scenes uh, type stuff, not just the technical stuff, because it's important. Yeah, I came back from a very small convention in Texas this weekend, and one of my most rewarding series of conversations were about three or four writers who were very serious about it, but were looking to find out, you know, can you just tell me how it works? How the, how the, how the, how do I submit a novel? Yeah. Or some friends of mine are interested and I are interested in putting together a shared world. And I'm going, oh boy, I got some stories for you about where you should be careful if you want to still be friends with those friends later on. I mm -hmm. really, really enjoy firsthand or secondhand sparing people grief. Oh, um, yes. Because that's my way of, of paying forward. When I was getting started, I, I basically, as a writer getting started, I started trying to write and submit and collect rejection letters right after I finished my grad work. And um, about that time, I was also corresponding with Roger Zelazny. And he told me a lot of just shop talk things mm -hmm. that, you know, being an English professor is really a lousy preparation for being in a working writer. And so I feel a strong desire to try and pass on to other people, you know, my version of, hey, here's some thoughts. Yeah, no, that's awesome because, well, that and, uh, you know, forewarned is forearmed, you know, uh, you, you can help people escape traps and, and, and things like that, which is, like you said, it always feels good if you can help somebody out, you know, and, uh, but, you know, there there's, you know, knowing what the resource you have to have talent you have to be able to work hard uh you but then you also have to have a certain resources and a scooch of luck you know to, yes to you know uh and that luck could be knowing the right people or joining the right uh group or going to the you know a particular convention where you meet this person you know yep. it could be anything um and uh but 
if the hard work and the talent's not there, you know, it's not, you know, not much, yep. you can, but some luck is needed. Yeah, I think it's a really good way to put it. Um, my husband, could, it could be said, has a very parallel line of networking to mine. Mm -hmm. And he, but he was busy being an archaeologist. And yes, he has a novel he wants to write and finish. And in fact, he's, he's working his way toward his next draft of it. But at the time, you know, all the all the luck and contacts in the world wouldn't have mattered. You have to have a manuscript and you have to be disciplined. Like I said, I wrote Library of the Sapphire Wind and Aurora Borealis Bridge um, completely on spec because I wanted to write those stories. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> allergy season here in a big way. I hear you. It wasn't about where's the marketplace and where can I get my foot in the door? But that's always been the case for me from my very first book. Mm. I get a little worried when I go to cons and I see people chasing what they think is going to be the hot thing rather than what they yeah. know. Because quite frankly, by the time they're done writing it, unless possibly it's short fiction, it's going to be that wave, that trend will be over with. And yeah. it'll just come across as, oh, I was trying to ride somebody else's idea or coattails. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, and another thing that I find is very important is in networking and, uh, um, or, you know, making your own luck, basically. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, be kind. Number one rule, don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know, you have, people have to want to work with you. Yeah. You know, and if you're, and if you're genuine, if you're a genuine person and you're, and you're kind and you will, and you work well with people, they're going to want to work with you. And that goes a long way. Yeah, I think one of the problems with that in today's day of social media is there are a lot of people out there who are getting attention for being jerks. Yeah. They may actually, if you know them face-to-face, -face, be really sweet, but they've learned that they get, they, they post a picture of their kitten and they get five hits. Yeah. They post a rant and they get 500 hits. So yeah. the, the, presumed reinforcement is the exact opposite. People are going to be going, wait a minute, but what about X who gets all those hits from being a temperamental or a jerk or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, you're telling me the wrong thing. I need to find my own personal jerk or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's how I'm going to get the following and the following is going to buy my books. But yeah, no. It's, yeah, it's a sad truth, and that's what uh, uh, social media is kind of doing to us. Uh, so, Jane, Jane, I could talk to you forever, uh, but uh, we got we got uh, coming to the end here. So, what I want I want you to do is uh, tell me your your elevator pitch for your series, and then of course uh, uh, the final book. And well, no, it's not the final book in the series, right? It's I'm a, I'm a firm believer in series as open-ended. Uh, as long as you haven't blown up the world and killed everybody, right. there's room to tell stories. It just might be about slightly different people. Um, but no, um, it's so it's no, I hope, I hope very much to write another book about these people. Awesome. Um, awesome. Elevator pitch. I'm terrible at them. As Charles <laughs> Lint once said, uh, I used as many words to tell the story as I had. So I'll just say uh, the Overwear series is one of those series where it's going to be fun. It's going to be fast. It's going to be adventurous. And you're going to wake up in the middle of the night realizing that actually underneath there were a lot of very deep issues being discussed, mm -hmm. but that nobody was lecturing you. Nobody was haranguing you. Um, but actually there's a lot to think about. So it's not, it's not popcorn, empty calories, but boy, do those calories go down easy. 
Yes, yes. No, and uh, and thank you for not making it uh, luxury because that seems to be happening uh, these days, and uh, it's it's appreciated when it doesn't. So uh, it's there, though. There's there's a lot of substance. I mean, no, there's lessons. Think, yes. Yes, yeah, I think a part of what House of Rough Diamonds, in part, is about is what's home, and it's also about uh, what is a person. Yeah. Because one of the things that Meg, Peg, and Teg really come to realize in this book is how many different kinds of people this world takes for granted as people. That it's not just the animal-headed people, uh, the cenotep. It, there are a lot of different kinds of people, and this is a world that accepts we can be lots of different kinds of people and still be people. Yeah. No, but uh, it was it's a very good read. I, I appreciated the opportunity uh, to read it before this. Now i got to go read the rest of the series, so thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, uh, go uh, go check out Jane's other series, The Wolf Books, and and everything else. It's all, and, it's all listed on my website. I'm horribly organized that way. Yes. In fact, that's where I found out about them. So go, go check it out. Uh, uh, sign up for her blog. Uh, follow your uh, favorite artist on um, on Amazon or wherever uh, you can find their books because that's important these days. You gotta you gotta follow, like, and review. Uh, if you want to support your your favorite artist, that's a great way to do it. Of course, go buy their books. But, right, and if you don't have the money to buy a book because you're poor and you need to go to the library, then but you can still do an online review. That's not going to cost you anything, but a little bit of time. Yeah, yeah, and it really helps out uh, uh, your favorite artists. So go ahead and, and do that. Jane, it has been a pleasure. I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on today. And hopefully we get to hear from you in the near future. Uh, what, what are you, what's, what's coming out for you in the near future that you can talk about? Um, I have a really cool short story called The Owl's Cry that's coming out. And of all things, an art book by the world, one of World Fantasy Convention's Artist Guests of Honor this year, Elizabeth Leggett. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Weber gets a chance, we've got a, another book in the Star Kingdom series. Uh, I've written my part, and he knows what his parts are. He's a very hands-on collaborator. This mm-hmm. is not a boy who sells his name. <laughs> so when, uh, when he gets his parts done, uh, then that will be out there. No, we don't have a title yet. We're terrible at that. <laughs> uh, well, um, and can and can people see you out in the wild anytime soon? Mm, just if they're in New Mexico. I uh, one of the differences between living on the East Coast and otherwise is, you know, for me to go to a con, it's either a plane flight or like an eight-hour, ten-hour drive. Oof. There's only one convention in New Mexico. Then next, it's eight hours to Colorado or eight or nine hours, depending on where in Arizona. All right. Well, you heard it, folks. You got to harass her on our website. So go go talk to her there and uh, follow and like and review. And, of course, uh, buy all the books. Uh, Jane, it's been a pleasure. It was lovely meeting you. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, get to meet again. You bet. I hope so, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. There was a note tacked on her front door. By the style of paper, thick, creamy, handmade linen, and the elegant script, she guessed that it was from Windwolf, 
a single piece of paper tri-folded. The note was sealed shut with a wafer of wax, and a spell that would notify the writer that the note had been opened, and perhaps by whom. The outside had her name written so fancy that she didn't recognize it at first. Tinker. The inside gleamed softly as she unfolded, a second spell being triggered, but it faded before she could tell what it did. Unfortunately, the writing was in a language that she could only guess to be high elvish. She considered driving to Toulouse to get it translated, but the old half-elf would probably only lie to her. Maynard? She glanced at the clock. After five, Nathan would be here within an hour, which didn't give her time to go downtown and back. If she took it with her to the fair, though, surely someone would be able to read it to her. Nathan knocked at exactly six o'clock and looked slightly dazed when she opened the door. Wow, you look wonderful. Thanks. She stepped out onto the sloop, armed her security system, and locked the door. Her outfit had no pockets, and it had taken an hour to pair things to be carried down to a single key and Windwolf's note. She stood a moment, unsure what to do with the key. The note was fairly simple to carry, but she couldn't hold the key all night. Her bra presented a natural pocket, so she tucked the key under her breast. Would it stay there? She jiggled a moment. Yes. Are we going to eat first? I forgot to eat all day. Embarrassingly enough, Nathan had watched the whole key thing and now stammered, Yeah, uh, yeah. I've made reservations at one of the rim's enclaves. Poppy Meadow. She tried to ignore the burn on her face. I didn't think you liked elfin food. Well, it's like eating at my mom's. You get what's being served, and if you don't like it, they still make you eat it. They do not. Okay, they make you pay for it, and they don't give out doggy bags. He wasn't being logical. So why are we going? Because I know you like it. She thought of the makeover woman's advice and nodded slowly. Okay. In the car, Nathan became oddly silent as he headed for the rim. What do people normally talk about on dates? Tinker asked to break the silence. Nathan shifted uncomfortably, as if this stressed that he was older and more experienced than she was. Well, normally you get to know each other. Where you're from, who your parents are, if you have brothers and sisters. You know, background info. We know all that. Yeah, Nathan said unhappily. Common interests, and if nothing else... The weather. Common interests. Bowling? That made her think of Windwolf. No, no, not a good idea. It sure was hot, this shutdown. She started the inane conversation about the weather. That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>